Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? Would you give a warm welcome to our Lexington campus and just let them know we appreciate them and our Shelby campus as well as all of you watching online. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for being with us and uh, we, lo we love you over at Lexington and Shelby. If you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to Psalm 127, Psalm 127. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 518, Psalm 127. 27. If you're here without a Bible, you're Lexington without a Bible, take that Bible with you as a gift from our church. You want to make sure they have a copy of God's Word. We're going to be looking at a text together this morning, walking right through it, Psalm 127. As you turn there, I just wanted to tell you about some exciting things that happened this week. I had the privilege of being at a conference in Colorado Springs uh, where I was asked to share about what God is doing here at Crossroads. Believe it or not, Crossroads was listed here in 2019, through 2018 to 19, as the 67th fastest growing church in America, uh, a church of great influence and things like that. So we were able to celebrate that. I say that not braggadocious, I say that very humbly. Uh, I got to brag on you this week and talk about what an awesome church this is to be a part of and what God is doing through our city center, through different campuses like Lexington, the heartbeat that we have for our region. Uh, it's amazing what God is doing through you. And I, I, you know, I say that not as just a pastor. I attend this church, and I tell people all the time, if I had to choose a church to attend in this region, I'd come here. And so I'm thankful to be a part of a church that has a heart for the community, a heart for the region, a heart for our city. And so I praise God for what he's doing. We had a chance to speak into the lives of pastors from all over the country as a result of what God is doing in and through us. And you know, one of the things I've learned being here, uh, you know, I moved uh, almost five years ago from Maryland here to Ohio. And uh, you know, I hear, when I first started here, and I still hear this all the time, people that said, why would you move here? Man, this place is dark, dreary, and cold. We got a lot of issues. You know, why would anybody move to Mansfield? And, and we've tried to challenge that and change that language. And what I've realized is when people say that, they've never really been outside of the area. They've never really seen what's around them. Yes, you might vacation and go on that Caribbean cruise and say, I don't like Ohio. Well, of course, if you go on a Caribbean cruise, you can't compare the two. But what I find is interesting, it's also true of the church. You know, a lot of you, and I say this very humbly, and I say this with great excitement, but I would challenge you when on vacation to go visit a church. Because I think what you'll find is, is it's pretty amazing here in little Mansfield, Ohio, that a church like Crossroads exists. And I mean that humbly. I've been around, I've been able to see some of the other churches that are around the country, and I'm always thankful that I get to be a part of this church. I get to be a part of what God is doing in and through you. And so I want to challenge you, if you, if you don't, don't realize what we have here, go visit, go look, go challenge, I challenge you to do that. And you, I think you will be amazed at the opportunity that we have to be the church in this region. And I am a firm believer that God uses the shameful things to confound the wise, that God uses things that are insignificant to show himself great glory. And so I would say to us, why not Crossroads? Why not Mansfield, Ohio? Amen? Uh, we get to be a part of that. So. Praise the Lord. Thank you. We love you. Uh, thank you what God is doing in Lexington. I, I love being a part of what God is doing here through our church. We're going to be finishing up a series here this morning called Family Portrait. We've been talking about what does it look like to reflect the family of God. And we looked at it through a few different angles. We've looked at it through the angle of the body of Christ. That you and I are part of the family of God as the body of Christ. We talked about marriage and the importance of reflecting Christ in our marriage. That the, the power of our church only comes through the purpose we reveal in our marriages. 
We then talked last week, Pastor Mike brought a great message about the next generation. And I want to piggyback on what he shared last week as we talk about the, the goal that we have as a church to be a multi-generational uh, multi place making an impact in the next generation. By the way, we are a church moving generations in a good way. We want to hand off the baton to the next generation as God sees fit to be able to make us a church that lasts into the future. So we want to talk here this morning about the topic of parenting. Parenting. Now, before we dive in, I know half of you, if not more of you, tuned out. You're like, listen, I've already done that thing. I'm a grandparent now. I've got to worry about parenting. I just spoil them and give them back. And then there's others of you, you're maybe not yet married, or, or maybe you're married but you don't have kids. Can I say to you this? Here's what I hope you've seen throughout this series. A couple weeks ago, I shared this. I hope you realize that the, the blood relationship that we have through Jesus is actually stronger than the blood relationship we have in family. That, that means this together, this relationship, we as a family, as a body of Christ, is actually deeper and stronger than the biological relationship we have in our marriages and our families. Now that sounds weird. It sounds Contradictory, but remember two weeks ago we looked at the passage where Jesus says actually marriage isn't going to last for eternity. Where the nuclear family as we know it here on earth is a temporary picture of the future glory we have as the body of Christ in heaven. That, that, that this nuclear family that we experience and enjoy here on earth is not what heaven's going to be like. It's only a picture of what heaven's going to be like. Meaning that my wife isn't merely my wife. My wife, because of her faith in Christ and my faith in Christ, she is my sister in Christ. And for eternity, that relationship lasts, not her as my wife. My kids, all four of my boys have come to know Jesus Christ. It's not just that they're my sons. It's that they're my brothers in Christ. And that relationship as a brother in Christ lasts into eternity. And can I tell you, when you begin to look at family from that angle, it changes how you see it. It changes how you respond in the midst of it. Because this relationship is temporary, but that relationship lasts forever. So, what does that mean? As we talk about parenting, what we're actually talking about is affecting the next generation. And so you may be here and have biological kids, you may have adoptive kids, you may have foster kids, or you may have no kids at all. It doesn't matter because you should be engaging and impacting the next generation. In fact, I want to make a bold statement right from the very beginning here. If you are here and you are not impacting the next generation, you're not having any relationship with the next generation, you are the problem with the church. Now, I know that sounds strong, and I'm coming out the gate strong here, but I want you to realize if you are not making an impact in the next generation, then when they don't follow Christ, whose fault is it? It's your fault. It's my fault. If I'm not impacting the next generation, then I can't complain about them. I can't say, man, those, those young people, they're weird. And young people, you're weird. You got this thing called the gram. You got this Snapchat thing. There's weird things, right? You're weird. It's okay, students. And you know what? You think we're weird. I mean, and, and we used to be cool. And, and now part of our coolness is to be weird before you. Like, that's our game. We play, play, we play it weird just to embarrass you. But right, let's think about this for a moment. You might look at our next generation. I want to challenge you. Don't just look at the next generation and cast them aside because God has great plans for them and their future is in our hands. So I want to talk about that. When we talk about parenting, we're talking to everybody here. 
we get this as a multi-generational church. We want to be multi-generational. We want to reach every generation with the gospel of Christ because I believe the blood-bought relationship in Jesus Christ is far superior than just merely our families. So I want to talk about this. Now, as a parent of four boys, there have been a lot, a lot of joys in parenting. But there's also been a lot of pain. I can tell you story after story of awesome, goofy things that we've done as a family. And I can tell you a lot of painful moments. Or let me quote the great philosopher Mike Tyson, who said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. It's true. Uh, I remember we were talking about this story that happened years ago. In fact, when we moved from the Washington, D.C. area to the church I pastored in my hometown in Hagerstown, Maryland, and uh, we were in our house there for six months, and Allison, my wife Allison is very creative. She loves to draw, and she makes these murals, and she paints things, and she's very creative, and so she wanted to paint on our wall this verse, or or at least a, a portion of a verse, and I was like, that sounds great. And so she painted this verse, and one day, after she had painted this on the wall, um, she heard a noise in our guest bedroom, which was on the main level, and she walks in, and there is, at the time, our youngest son, Isaac, who, who was around three years old at that moment, two to three years old, and he had a Sharpie, and he was drawing all over the walls. And Allison instinctually reacts and goes, what are you doing? And startles him, of course, and then he says to her, I'm drawing a picture like mommy. Oh, yeah. A little, a little demon. A little demon. That child. Right? You can't punish that, can you? That's kind of cute. He's like, he's drawing a picture like, like mommy. By the way, we still have a table. It's in our, in our living room, kind of our, our living room to dining room. And uh, it has a, a piece, a mark where the Sharpie wrote because he missed the wall and hit the table. And so we keep that. In. And every once in a while we talk about that. We laugh about that moment, right? I mean, as we talk about the next generation, what picture are we painting for them? What are they grasping for, uh, from us and then following after us? Now, when I talk about parenting, parenting is a hot topic. Over the last two decades, 20 years, I don't know if you know this, there have been 80,000 books written on parenting. That's 10 books per day that are written on the subject of parenting. You would think by now that we would be experts on it. And yet it's one of the great difficulties and one of the great aspects of our calling as people. You would think we have it nailed down by now, but we don't. Now before we dive in, I want to set this text up for us, so bear with me. Most of us live with a philosophy of parenting. If you're a grandparent, you're impacting the next generation. There is a philosophy that says this. It says that children begin their lives as a blank slate, and we get them to write on that slate. You ever heard that before, anybody here? You ever heard that? That is the common belief of our day, isn't it? Is that children begin life with a blank slate, and you and I get to determine who they're going to be. Now, I want you to think about that. Believe it or not, that ideology came from the 1950s and 60s from a psychiatrist named B.F. Skinner. Now, why this is interesting. B.F. Skinner was actually an atheist. And he came up with the idea that children begin with a blank slate, and you and I get to write their story with them. If that is true, I want you to think about how that then plays out. If it is true that children are a blank slate, that means as you and I lead the next generation, that good parenting will equal good children. Like if we follow that idea, that means that what we do will actually then result in good children. But can I tell you? That's actually not true, is it? If you have kids, you know this. 
It's not true. In fact, you don't have to go very far. You can go back to the beginning of the story of the Bible and you see this. Uh, many people quote the verse from Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way they should go and when they are old, they will not depart from it. You ever heard that verse? And we'll start to quote that and say, well, see, I'm raising them the right and they're not going to depart from it. What you don't understand is that Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are principles. Proverbs are not the way life always happens. Proverbs are the way life sometimes happens. And so what, what Proverbs gives us is this picture of life, but it doesn't always take place. It's not a promise. It's a principle. And so when we quote that verse, we're, we're taking it out of context of the principle of Proverbs. So... We go back to the beginning of the story. What do we find in Genesis? In Genesis, we have a God who creates. He creates a perfect environment. He then makes perfect kids. And what happens? Right here's the equation of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. The equation of Genesis 1 through 3 is a perfect environment that God creates with a perfect parent God with perfect children, Adam and Eve, doesn't lead to perfect obedience, does it? In Genesis chapter 3, we find very quickly rebellion. In spite of a perfect environment with a perfect parent, with perfect kids, they still choose to rebel against him. That's the story of the gospel. You and I need Christ because we rebel against the God who is perfect. And so we need a savior. That doesn't work with kids to say good parenting equals good children, does it? Why? Because even God, if that's true, would have failed. Right? God, a perfect parent in a perfect environment, with perfect kids, yet they still rebel against them. I say this to parents all the time. If your success as a parent is based upon your goodness, then God is the ultimate failure who is absolutely perfect and his children rebelled against him. But it's not true, is it? Why? Because it's not true that good parenting equals good children. It doesn't work that way. In fact, this means, if we understand this and believe this, that means today that you can't take too much credit if your kids turn out successful. And you can't take too much blame if they fail. Right, because we have to grasp who God is. We have to wrestle into who God is. We cannot take too much uh, picture, too much credit for if they're good or bad. Now in this, when we hear this, our natural response, and here's where it gets tricky, and what I want to show you this morning here from this passage, is what gets tricky is our natural tendency to know our kids are rebellious is to take control. We try to control our kids so we think, I want them to know, I want them to follow, and so we control the situation. The problem is it doesn't work that way, does it? You don't have to be an expert at parenting to learn this quickly. I remember before we had kids, I thought I knew how to raise kids. I would watch other kids, other parents, and their kids not listen to them, and I think my kids would not do that. By the way, I had our sons, and true story, all of them at two years old, no problems. You know, everybody talked about the terrible twos. It didn't happen for us. Our two-year-olds were, were good. They listened pretty well. I was surprised. And I was like, man, I told Allison, I was like, baby, love, we've got to write a book. Like, we've got this thing figured out. And then they turned three. And I realized that all that I heard about two-year-olds, boys are, uh, they develop later. And all of a sudden, all the two-year-old stories became three-year-old stories. And I was like, this is insane. And, and I remember, right, you, you, if you have kids, you know this, right? Right there, they're, they're in the living room, and they're putting their hand in the socket, and you go up to them and say, no, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. And they look right at you and go, <laughs> they don't care. Listen, you learn early on you don't have control. Like, you can't control your kids. Now, certainly there are boundaries you put in place, and early on we have more control than we do later on. The issue of parenting biblically is not control. The issue of parenting biblically is influence. See, the line is between control 
or influence. That's the picture. As we look throughout the Bible, what God gives to us is is scriptural principles not to control our kids, but to influence our kids rightly. And so I want to show you one of those here in Psalm 127. In Psalm 127, we see the picture of what influence is as a parent. Now, if you take a look at Psalm 127, it begins with a phrase that says, a song of ascents of Solomon. Now, a lot of our texts don't put that as verse 1, but that actually should be in verse 1. Uh, that's in the Hebrew manuscripts. There's a heading there, and it says, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. Solomon here has written this psalm. Now, Solomon had some credibility. He had some street cred. Why? Because we know that he was a father because he was married to many women. Oh, by the way, just a little side note if you're here and you say, Well, why did God allow uh, men to have multiple wives? Can I tell you the honest truth? It never works out well in the Scripture. God never endorses it. It was the culture of the day but it never works out well. So Solomon had many wives, that means many kids. It's never, never recommended in the scripture. In fact, every illustration is bad. And then we find him not only as a parent, so he had some skill, he had some access as a parent to speak about these things, he was also a builder. Remember Solomon was the one, the, the son of David, he built the temple. And so Solomon understood building. So the language he's gonna use is really gonna be this picture of building the home. In fact, it goes on to say it's a song of ascent. I love this because the Song of Ascent, these were songs that were sung as the people of Israel, as Jews, went up to the temple. As they went to the mountaintop of the temple, which is on a mountain, Mount Zion, as they would go up to the temple in Jerusalem, they would actually sing these songs. I find it no accident that as they ascended to the temple to worship and sacrifice, a song they sung was about family, was about raising kids. In fact, many scholars believe that this song would be sung as a song of thankfulness at the birth of a new child. Can you imagine, as we read this, I want you to think about that, ladies, you give birth to the child and all of a sudden there are people around you singing this song. Many scholars believe that's exactly what happened. Why? Because it gives you insight into what you're supposed to do as a parent. So take a look with me, Psalm 127, and we'll begin. A song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate." Now, our English doesn't do this text justice because the Hebrew really gives some contrast between words and some parallels between words. So, uh, you know, in poetry, this is poetical. It's not poetry like we think, like our poetry rhymes. Roses are red, violets are blue. When I think of you, I go, woohoo. Right? We have a rhyme to our poetry. In Hebrew, it's not rhyme, it's actually. The, the, the placement of consonants or the, the syllables. And so there would be so many syllables and then there would be so many syllables. And so they match in that form. And what's interesting is there are some words that really go together. They sound alike. Like, for example, the word build and builder is similar in sound to the word son and daughter. So as Solomon is writing this, he's giving pinpoint direction as to what he means. What he's actually speaking of is the idea of developing the family. And he uses words interchangeably that our English doesn't show. So I want to look at this, and there are actually three sections to this psalm. These three sections give us insight into what Solomon is trying to tell us about raising the next generation. Number one, we find our vanity 
in parenting, our vanity in parenting, that we are actually powerless. Take a little look at what he says in verse 1. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Do you notice the contrast here? Twice he says, unless the Lord, and then three times he says, vanity. So he's making a contrast. He's saying, listen, you can build a house, a house that is a picture of stability, is a picture of the fact that you have a home now. You can watch over the city, right? The, the city gates and the city walls were part of protection. We not only find stability, we find security. By the way, uh, this is true a lot of places around the world. I don't know if you know this or not. But it's actually most people start building a home, not by building a home, but by building walls. It's true. Uh, I was, have friends in Nicaragua who are missionaries. I've been there to train pastors. And one of the things that I found very interesting, I had a missionary friend who they actually built a house in Nicaragua. And within weeks of building the home and finishing it, it was robbed by thieves. And what they learn and what they tell every missionary is, don't build a home, first build a wall around the property. Why? To protect yourself. And so he says, you have a watchman who's watching out. You're bringing security. And then he says, there are some that are going to work tirelessly. You're going to have anxiety over the toil, day and night. You're going to work hard. You're going to try to, to provide for your family. It's this image of provision. Of, and then he says, but what about sleep? What about rest? Now think about the contrast. Here's where he goes with this. He says, if you build a home, if you're a watcher on the wall guarding your home, if you're anxiously toiling and working hard, but you don't have God, doesn't matter. Why? Because that home can crumble in a storm. That wall can be infiltrated by the enemy. That anxious toil doesn't actually bring you rest. So he says, is it going to be vanity? Or, or will, it be, will it be valuable? Valuable in the Lord. Will it be temporal? Or will it be eternal? Will it be fleshly or will it be spiritual? That's the contrast Solomon is making. He's saying either the Lord will be in our efforts and in our endeavors or they'll ultimately be useless. By the way, this is exactly parallel to what Jesus says in John 15, 5 when he says, he says, apart from me, without me, you can do nothing. The point is, without God in our lives, without Christ in our lives, everything we do loses its meaning, loses its value. Build a house, build a wall, watch over your city. He says here, work tirelessly, it never is going to bring you gain. It always will be useless if God is not in the midst of the endeavor. In fact, if you build your life without God, if you build your home without God, all it will lead to is empty activities. Activities that will never lead to usefulness. In fact, you'll start to build things that God doesn't want. Or secondly, it will lead to unnecessary anxieties. He says it here. He, he says all of a sudden you're rising up, you're going to bed late, you're eating the bread of anxious soul. Is it not true that there are many people overwhelmed in our culture with anxiety and worry? And he says the problem is not the situation, the problem is God. Where is God in the midst of our building of our homes? Now, that is the backdrop by which he then leads to the main statement of this text. So in Hebrew poetry, a lot of the main points come right in the middle of the text. It builds chiasm here. And so he says, listen, you build a house, you watch over the gate, doesn't matter. Unless you have God. It's God in the midst of it. And then he says this. Now notice it, verse 3. Behold, 
Based upon that truth, that unless you build your house without the Lord, the Lord's not involved with it, it's in vain. But if the Lord's involved with it, behold, here it is, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. This is point two, our joy in parenting children are a gift. So if I understand that I'm building the home based upon God, that I'm building a home because of the Lord, unless the Lord does this, it's not going to be successful. Now I realize that children are not a pain. Children are not a punishment. Children are a gift from God. They are a blessing from the Lord. They are not a burden. See, our culture, they will teach you that children, they will say to us that children are a burden. Children are interruptions to our pursuit of our self-centered goals. But God says that children actually are a treasure. By the way, that doesn't mean if you don't have children. I'm talking about the children of our church. I'm talking about the children you can impact. Whether it's biological, foster, it's adoptive, it doesn't matter where those kids are. They are treasures to us. Grandparents, they are treasures to you. Great-grandparents, they are treasures. Right? The kids you get to teach in school, they're treasures to you. Children are heritage. By the way, I love the word there that they are a reward a fruit of the womb. Now, I love that. Because the reward, word reward here in Hebrew is the word sakah. And it actually literally means reward for a work well done. Like, you don't just go ahead and get the national championship trophy and give it to the Ohio State Buckeyes, do you? Now, most of you probably here would say, absolutely you give it to them. But, but you don't give the trophy before you ever play in the, in the game. Now, there, there's two sides that, this, that I believe Solomon means this, and both of them work in the Hebrew. The first one is literally that children is a reward for giving birth. So if you literally give birth, right, women, it's a reward. That's really hard to convince a, a mom of who just gave birth, though. You have that baby, and it's not easy, and then that baby comes about. I won't explain all of that. And here's the reward. Congratulations. And then they cry all night. We live in a fallen world. But what I think is very interesting, now, now follow me here. I actually think Solomon isn't just talking about that. I think Solomon here is saying that God is giving us the reward before we ever deserve or show ourselves faithful to the reward. What do, what do I mean? This means that God gives us the children in our lives, God gives us the next generation, and says, I am banking on the fact I am going to reward you without you yet showing yourself faithful to the task ahead. I'm going to give you the child believing that because you are building your home on me, unless the Lord builds a house, so I'm going to reward you on your future faithfulness. I'm going to reward you on the fact that you are going to be faithful in the future because that word means to work, to get a reward for work well done. So he, he makes this statement. Children are not a burden. They're a, they're a gift. By the way, isn't it true? Children didn't come from us. Children come through us. Children come from God to us. They come from God through us. So this is God giving this gift to you and I. Again, whether you have children or not, there are children in your life that God has given to you as a gift. Now, children are not a burden. Let me just be honest. They are hard work, are they not? Let's just be straight up. They are hard work. I say this to parents all the time. I know I've had to do this in my own life. I'm going to fail, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to repeat. Fail, repent, repeat. There's going to be times as parents we're going to fail. But what do we do? We repent of that and we continue. We repeat it. We try again. We keep going. A little side note here. I find it very interesting as I study the Bible. I find it very interesting that the gifts that God gives to us, 
start out not as blessings or rewards. They start as liabilities, don't they? Like, just think of salvation for a moment. Right, here is God, the God of the universe, came to earth, died on a cross for us because we were ungodly, we could not save ourselves. He goes to a cross to die for our sins. He, he sheds his blood, his perfect blood, his sinless blood, as a, an, a satisfaction of our sin debt. He then is put into a grave where he, three days later, walks out of the grave to confirm that his blood was indeed sufficient so that we can be saved and now we're rescued and brought into new life. Now, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, you know what happens. You come to know that. It is awesome. It's amazing. And then it's overwhelming, isn't it? Because now it feels a little bit like a liability. Like now I've got to live this way, and I've got to obey God, and I've got to read his word, and I've got to pray. And can I tell you, every gift you find in the scripture begins, and it feels like a liability. It then turns to a responsibility, and eventually it becomes an asset. This is the journey of gifts. It's true. It's true. You, you receive from God, it feels a little weighty, it's good, it feels a little weighty, then it becomes a responsibility, and all of a sudden, as you walk with Christ longer, you see, wow, this is such an asset to my life, I am so free in Christ, this is not a burden for me, this is awesome. Can I tell you, kids follow that same path. They start as liabilities, they become responsibilities, but then they grow into assets in our, into our lives. Now, how do they do that? He gives us the answer. Children are a gift. They're a reward for us. And then we come to point three, the third section of this psalm. Number three, our reward for parenting. We have the opportunity to send them on mission. We have the opportunity to direct the mission that their life is going to be about. So God gives us these things for the future faithfulness we're going to have. And this is now. Here's the task. Here's how we do this. Take a look at verse four. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. By the way, that does not mean you have to have a lot of children. His point is, when you have arrows, the impact of the next generation, what happens? He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I love that, by the way, that phrase, because in their day, deals were made at the city gates. And if you wanted a deal to last you would make sure you had witnesses that could line up that deal. And so what would happen is if you had the next generation that were following you, that it would be impacted by you, a, a, an enemy making a deal of peace at the city gates wouldn't be able to then go back on that because you have a lineup of generation that could speak to the truth of that moment. So he's using this analogy of war, and he says, listen, pretend you're making a peace treaty with the enemy. It's good to have those who are following you in life, who are following your example, who are following the generation. So let's think about this for a moment. He uses here, Solomon uses the imagery of war. And he uses the imagery of an arrow. Now I'm going to confess to you, I'm not a bow hunter. I know some of you are, and you're quite good at this. But I can tell you what I do know about arrows, because Solomon here is using war imagery, right? What I know about arrows is that arrows must be shaped and sharpened. Like, right, in Solomon's day, you didn't go down to the Dick's Sporting Goods store and say, hey, I need some arrows. No, instead, you had to pick up a stick and you had to form and fashion that stick. So arrows have to be shaped and sharpened. You have to give them a point so they can penetrate whatever it is you're going to shoot them at. So think about the analogy for a moment. If kids are arrows in our hands, they need shaped and sharpened. Children don't grow into straight, sharp arrows by being left to themselves. You don't just put them in a room and say, good luck with your life. You don't, by the way, make them shape and sharp arrows by saying, here's a computer, go have fun. Or here's a TV, go watch it. 
They become shaped, sharp arrows with intention. Right, that means you and I have to intentionally be engaging their lives, to be engaging them with the truth of Scripture. They need to be shaped and sharpened. Secondly, arrows not only are shaped and sharpened, but they have, to be, they have to be loaded and released. They have to be aimed at a target and released. Right, arrows left in a quiver, this is a quiver, arrows left in the quiver do nothing. Arrows that can't fly straight will never fulfill or never enter or hit the target. You and I are called to aim and release the arrows of the next generation to the right place. That means you and I need some skill. We need some sufficiency to be able to point the children in the right direction, our kids in the right direction, our young people in the right direction, and make sure they're aimed at the right target. Now for you and I, what is the right target? What is the bullseye for you and I? The bullseye is Christ. Right, ultimately, for our kids, it is not academic success that is going to get them. It's not athletic success. It's not social success. What matters in the end is when they stand before God, the only thing that will matter in that day will be, do they know Christ and did they live for Christ? So, for you and I, the target is obvious. I want my kids, we want our kids, we want the next generation to realize that life is worth it in Christ. It's the bullseye. That one day when they stand before God, that this life in Jesus was worth everything. No matter what else happens in their life. And by the way, isn't it true if you have Christ, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto us. All these other things will take place. All these other things will, will, will satis be satisfied. All these other things will be provided. First, Christ. I pursue him. This is the target. Now, arrows got to be shaped and sharpened. Arrows have to be aimed and released. There's intention to that. So, if our kids are not merely an accessory, but they're arrows, how do we do this? Well, let me tell you this, as we kind of look at some side notes here, let me tell you this. Do you realize that 93% of Christian parents say they realize that they are the spiritual influence for their kids? 93% of Christian parents say, I know I am the spiritual influence for my kids. Do you realize that only 50% of them actually say they're engaging their kids spiritually? Now think about this. All of us probably would agree that Christ is the center of the target. And yet, 50% of those who agree with that aren't engaging their kids spiritually. I don't know if you know this or not, but only 1% of kids that are raised not knowing or not hearing or not engaging the Christian truth will actually follow Christ in their 20s. Only, only 1%. But that number goes up to 95% according to recent researchers, 95% if they've had engagement in their home based upon Jesus Christ. So think about the, the truth of that. 1% will follow Christ if they never hear about it, but 95% will follow Christ into their 20s if they are engaged spiritually. So how do we do that? I want to give you three thoughts here as we end. Uh, Solomon doesn't go in this detail. He leaves it open-ended and says, hey, there are arrows in your hands. So what does this mean? What do, what do we do to do this well? First of all, number one, transfer dependence from us to God. The first thing we have to do is make sure we're transferring dependence. When we pull back the bow with the arrow in it, we are transferring the dependence from our hand, from our bow, to God, right? We are transferring dependence from us to God. Now, I look around and I think there are, in our world, multiple types of parents. I want to label two for a moment. There are many parents that I would call etch-a-sketch parents. Remember etch-a-sketch? A thing you would write those lines or those two little dials, and then you would shake it, and the boundary would disappear. I, by the way, I call that a Michigan computer. 
Some of you get that later. I'm Michigan. You, you, right, you turn the dials, and what happens? Here, here's, a, here's an Etch-a-Sketch parent is you build a boundary, and then the kid doesn't follow it, and so you shake it, and you restart. And then you build another boundary. Oh, they didn't do that well, so let's try another one. Let's try another one. And what you're doing is really maybe for you, you want your kids to like you, but you have an inconsistent set of boundaries. You're not drawing lines that they can understand. And so what happens is you're like, I want my kid to like me. I want my kid to be my friend. Listen, it doesn't matter if the kid's your friend or likes you. It doesn't matter. The question is, are they headed to the target? Listen, I could care less if my kids like me or not. I don't care. What I want them to do is follow Jesus Christ. What I want them to do is live for him. They might not like me in that journey, but if they can do this, then we've succeeded. So I don't care if I'm their friend. I wasn't made to be their friend. I was made to be their bow, sending them out as arrows. I was made to prepare them as weapons of war. And so, now, along the journey, of course, I hope they, they, they love me, but, but if they don't, I don't, I don't care. If they follow Christ, I'm gonna stand before God one day, and that's what's gonna matter, right? The next generation needs Christ. And so you're trying to be a friend, you're a friend to your kids? Don't, don't worry about that. Don't, you're trying to have your kids like you? Don't worry about that. Show them Christ. Show them the target. Live out the target. That leads to kind of the second observation, by the way, um, or the second parenting. The second parenting I would consider is Etch-a-Sketch parents, but then I also think of lifeguard parents. Lifeguard parents are the parents that are constantly rescuing our kids from unnecessary consequences or from consequences that they get. And so you might be the parent that your kid forgets their lunch six times, six days in a row, and you go back to the school every single time because you're afraid they're going to starve. And you overparent, right? And you think by overparenting them, you're protecting them. Can I tell you, the consequences of you not teaching them what consequences look like is much greater in the future. And so you overparent. Don't overparent. The consequences are going to be greater in the future. Let them experience unpleasant situations. In fact, let your kids fail. Because if they fail in your presence, you can then direct them rightly into what they should be doing. Direct them how to deal with failure because failure is going to happen in this life. And so they can be directed back to Christ. We've got to let them fail. So what do we do? The Bible teaches us that the answer is not by changing their behavior. An arrow in our hand is not changing behavior. An arrow in our hand is going after their heart. See, behavior is control. Heart is influence. So, so I know in my home, and, and we're not perfect by any means, you can come to my house and see it very quickly. One of the things that we've done is said, you know, we're not going to make every decision for our kids. And so we've taught them, hey, when you make this decision, have you prayed about it? Have you asked God? Have you sought God's word about this decision you're about ready to make? Now, we're not talking about them driving off a cliff. We're talking about normal, everyday decisions. We're engaging them. Have you prayed about it? Have you sought the scripture about it? What what are you thinking about this? Just hear your thoughts. We ask questions. We don't just always tell them. And can I tell you, there have been moments we allow them to do something that we know is going to fail. We know it. But we want them to fail in our presence. We want them to fail so they learn failure and they know how to directly then respond to that failure. And so we, we want to set up our kids to be able to succeed. Why? Because the target is in our likeness. The target is Jesus. The, the target is Christ. That we're sending them on the mission. That leads to the second observation. That is set expectations and live by them. If you're going to be a, an influence of the next generation, you need to set expectations, but you also need to live by them. Barna Research did, did, just did some research, and this is what they found they found that there was a common thread between families that had their kids follow Christ. You know what the common thread was? Is that the kids and parents understood the direction they were headed. That parents embraced what they taught. 
You know, we live in a culture that says, kids, do as I say, not as I do. What if we instead say, no, kids, I'm going to expect from you what I'm going to reflect to you. I'm going to expect you to live the way I'm going to live. I'm going to show you the way, at times failing, but I'm going to show you how to deal with it. I'm going to reflect what I'm asking you to expect in your life. You know, some of us, we look at our lives and say, well, I can't, I can't tell my kids to expect this because I failed in the past. Can I just encourage you, don't think just because you did it in the past doesn't mean you can prohibit it in the present. Just because you did it in the past doesn't mean you can't lay a boundary or, or lay a guideline or say this is the way we ought to live. There are some of you here that might say, well, Dave, you don't understand. My child will never listen to me. Can I tell you something? Don't worry whether they're listening to you or not. Worry that they're watching you or not. Right? They're watching you. Be the reflection of the target you're trying to shoot them to. They may not listen, but they can watch. They can see it in your life. If they believe you live it, they'll remember that in their lives. They'll remember that. And lastly, we need to release them to God's purpose. Release them to God's purpose. Uh, and that research, it showed that a child and the parent were heading in the right direction, the same direction, that the child understood the expectations. Uh, by the way, I talk about this a lot with teenagers when I speak at schools and different things, and I talk about how uh, our parents have created low expectations and that we need to raise the bar of expectations on our kids. By the way, did you know George Washington was a governor of Virginia at 13 years old? True story. I mean, you go back, uh, Leif Erikson, who was a Viking, led a ship across the Atlantic at the age of 11. You know, so in our culture, we say, well, 11-year-old's just a kid. A 13-year-old, man, I just told my kids don't drink, chew, and go out with girls that do. If they do that, they'll be successful. <laughs> my mom used to say that to me. Is that our level of expectation? Well, they, they didn't get pregnant. At least they're not taking the drugs. Is that our expectation? Or is our expectation, no, I'm going to shoot you to the target of Jesus. Like you can make a difference in your generation. You can make a difference for the cause of Christ in the future. Don't let, it, don't let the enemy say low expectations. Young people that are here, don't let the enemy speak low expectations. It's not just a celebration when you get up and do your homework or you get up and get yourself dressed for school. No, we should ex be expecting more from you because God can do more through you. And everybody here should say amen to that. I'm just saying we, we should raise the bar of expectations for our kids because God has called them to himself and God throughout the Bible uses our young people to do great things for his glory. So what's the point? The point is there is no notion of neutral when it comes to raising the next generation. There is no idea of neutral. No, you and I have to be intentional. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I say this to people all the time. It is easier to shape a child than it is to repair an adult. How are you shaping your children? How are we shaping the next generation? Are you here and you say, listen, Dave, I, I want my kids to be academically successful, right? And so you're shooting the target, academic success. Nothing wrong with that, right? Academic success hits the target, but it's not the bullseye. Maybe you're here this morning and say, Dave, I, I really want my kids, I want my kids to be socially able. Like I want them to meet somebody and get married and eventually have kids and hold on a job and make some money. Nothing wrong with that, but, but yes, it's on the target, but let's be honest, it's not the bullseye. You might be here this morning, you might say, Dave, I love my kid to get a scholarship in sports. I want them to be athletically good. I want them to do well. Nothing wrong with pursuing excellence in sports. Sports can be a valuable thing. But let's be honest, you may be on the target, but you're not in the bullseye. If you're aiming your children just to be athletically 
have athletic prowess, just to be athletically talented, you are missing the point of this life. The point of this life, the point of the next generation is that they see that Jesus is worth it. They see that Jesus is worthy of their lives. That when they stand before God, and maybe they weren't athletically phenomenal. Maybe they weren't academically strong. Maybe they didn't have a great job. Maybe it's just an okay job. Maybe their family was tough. Raising kids wasn't easy. When they stand before God, they understood that this life was all about Jesus. All about Christ. May we be a people pointing the next generation as arrows in our hands toward the gospel message that Jesus is the answer. I'm going to ask us as we end if you would stand with me. We're going to end a little bit differently here this morning. I just felt led as I was praying through this message in the end of this series. I know many of you, you feel the burden of raising kids, whether they're your own or not. And maybe you're here and you're a parent, you feel like you failed. Can I tell you? You're right. You're right, we fail. Hey, go read the Bible. You know what you find over and over? His parents have failed. You know who da- Solomon's dad was? It was David who had an affair and murdered a guy. There's failures all throughout the Bible. And yet they come back and they repent and they, they turn and they say, you know what? I may not have made a smooth arrow, but I'm going to help show them the target. So as we end today, I'm going to ask you, if, if you're here, maybe you just want, as a declaration of your commitment to the next generation, to say, you know what, I want to make the arrows sharp and shapened. I, I want to point them and launch them in the right direction. I want, to, I want to be a picture of Christ. I'm going to ask you, just in the quietness, as we bow our head and close our eyes, I'm going to ask you, would you just come forward here? Would you just come up here? I want to pray for you. Maybe you're here and you're going through a hard time as a parent. Maybe, maybe things are going well for you, but you're committed. Maybe right now you feel like a failure. And I'm just going to ask you, would you just come right up here? And I just want to pray for you. As a sign of commitment to our church to be about the next generation. Would you just come up? I want to have a moment of prayer together. You care about the next generation. You want to see them hit the target of Jesus Christ. Listen, Christianity, this church only succeeds as we look at the next generation and engage them. It doesn't. We'll just be a, 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 a memento of history if we don't realize the importance of taking these arrows and launching them well. And so you're here and you say, you know what, Dave? I just, as a declaration before the Lord, I want to engage the next generation. I want them to follow Christ. I'm committed to that. Would you just come? Would you just join us? It's easier to shape a child than it is to repair an adult. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, you don't know Christ. God came and died for you. He rose again for you. If you were the only person on this earth because of your sin, we all are sinners, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I believe if you were the only one on earth, God still would have come for you because he loves you. He went to a cross and he died for that, our sins and he walked out of a grave to prove that his way is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And today you can give your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you know Christ. Listen, with with strong arms of prayer, may we pull back the bow of the gospel and send our kids into the target of Jesus. If they don't get anything else, if they never succeed at anything else, they're never athletically good, they're, they're never academically strong. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Maybe they don't hold a job very easily. 
Maybe they don't have a lot of talents or abilities, but they know Jesus. Can I tell you? You've done your job. We've done our job. If our kids can know Christ. So I just want to pray for you in this moment. God, I want to thank you. Lord, we're a church that has all these generations. And God, we want to be a people that launches the next generation well. God, yeah, they got some weird things. So do we. Yeah, they've got some different ideas. They have different perspectives. Even the clothing we wear is a little bit differently. But God, you've called us to take them. They're arrows. They're gifts to us. They're rewards for future faithfulness. So God, may we be found faithful to the next generation. God, may we put them in the bow of your gospel. And may we, with arms of prayer, launch them to a target that we've shown them. May we expect what we reflect. God, may we be a picture of your grace in our lives. And God, when we fail, may we repent and repeat. May we continue to go. God, we're going to fail at times as parents, as grandparents, as, as those investing in the next generation. But God, may we get up and say, this is how you fail. May we ask forgiveness and then move on. So God, may we be a picture of what we want for our kids to be so that this church will last into the future. But God, not just this church, that your message in a world growing more hostile, may it be that we proclaim a message that stands the test of time because the next generation sees that you're worth it all. You're worth it all, Jesus Christ. It's in your name. The name of our Savior, the name of our sacrifice, the name of the one who promises to come again as King. It's in your name, Jesus. We pray. Amen. Amen. As we end, we're going to sing this song. What a beautiful name. As we end, contemplating the goodness of the Christ we serve.